Welcome to the Eden Podcast, where we think again about the Bible on women and men, and we start with the correct understanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden back in the beginning. The work of the True 316 Foundation is based on the research of Dr. Joy Fleming, who wrote the book Man and Woman in Biblical Unity, Theology from Genesis 2 to 3. Listeners like you are joining us as members of the True 316 Foundation and support the work to true the verse of Genesis 316 and the seven key passages on women and men. It turns out, when Genesis 316 becomes clear, all the other passages become clear too. You can learn more at our website, true316.com. That's T-R-U-316.com. And at the end of this episode, we'll tell you about a special gift we have for new members. And now, enjoy today's episode of the Eden Podcast. Hello, and welcome. Glad you're all joining us tonight. I'm Christy Gudum, and I'm on the corporate board of the True 316 Foundation. We're a private operating foundation dedicated to truing the verse of Genesis 316 and related passages on women and men. We're celebrating the public launch of the True 316 Foundation on 316 Day, March 316, March 16 of 2023. There are words written in the Hebrew scripture that are not being communicated to our generation in plain English. In fact, in Genesis 316, we're being told the opposite of what we should be hearing. We have the opportunity to true the verse. We have the challenge to square up the words of our translations to accord with the plain meaning of the Hebrew and Greek text. We can now true up the verse at Genesis 3.16 and in related passages on women and men. And to do that, we need to make it known. That's why we're launching the True 3.16 Foundation. So we can work together to support the work financially, prayerfully, and by volunteering. You'll meet some of the pioneer volunteers and others among our true friends as we continue this evening. And first off, let's learn how translations come to us, how they come to be, and how they are revised when necessary. So our keynote speaker tonight is a member of the update committee of the New International Version. You may have heard of that, the NIV. It is the best-selling English version in the world. Dr. Brown is also the David Price Professor of Biblical and Theological Foundations and the Director of Online Programs at Bethel Seminary at Bethel University here in St. Paul, Minnesota. She is married, has two beautiful daughters, two wonderful sons-in-law, and two grandchildren. Uh, Dr. Janine Brown, we'd love to hear from you. So glad to be with you this evening. <clears throat> I have a very symmetrical family, it seems, two, two, and two. Um, but we do hope for more grandchildren, so we'll, we'll mix it all up when that happens. Translators have never had an easy time in the court of public opinion. In the Talmud, Rabbi Judah ben Eli was reported as saying, he who translates literally is a liar, and he who paraphrases is a blasphemer. An Italian proverb goes like this, traditori, traditori, translated, translators, traitors. I've come to think that such strong opinions on translation, and especially Bible translation, occur for two reasons. The first is people feel very strongly about their Bibles, which isn't a bad thing. 
even as they access their Bibles in translation, for the most part. And second, most people know very little about the translation and revision process, the reasons for it, and the people who do that work. So my hope tonight is to demystify a bit Bible translation and ongoing revision. I'd like to give you an inside look at Bible revision by addressing the why, the who, and the how of Bible revision. First of all, we're going to look at the, the why. And to get a sense of that, I want to uh, have you think about the lay of the land when it comes to Bible translation and the current landscape. In the last 70 years or so, here are the translations of the Bible. And you'll notice afterward in the parentheses, some of them that have gone through revision, more of them. Uh, I don't have all the revision dates for all of these, but um, the a number of translations have gone through revision within these last 50, 40, 30 years. And we'll talk more about that process and why that happens. So it really raises a question of why. Why so many Bible translations? I'm not going to really address that in English. We have a wealth of them. We're a little bit spoiled, and we get a little bit fussy about our translations because we're so spoiled. But that's a different conversation. That's not what I was asked to talk about tonight. But we are going to talk about why Bible revision or that ongoing translation. As we think about translation, then think about that why question, which is the next slide. Why does this go on? There are really two reasons why Bible revision continues to happen. Every translation that you know and love has gone through a revision, unless it's a brand new translation within the last 10 years or so. So the next slide talks a little bit about the two reasons for Bible translation. First reason, because there's new knowledge of the biblical worlds and the biblical text. Scholars study and learn and grow, and they know more. And also, English and any other translation, any other language in which the Bible is translated changes over time. So for both those reasons, revision keeps on going, and a translation continues to change. So let's give some examples of new knowledge of the biblical worlds or the biblical text. I'm going to jump, first of all, into an example from the Dead Sea Scrolls. You may know that the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the middle of the 20th century. And what it did for... Bible translation is it gave us a text that was about a thousand years younger than the Masoretic text, the Hebrew Masoretic text that was being translated typically for the English Bible. So let me give you an example of one of the ways we learn what we've learned about the Old Testament from the Dead Sea Scrolls. In Isaiah 21, 6 and 7, we hear that God commands a lookout to be posted. And then in verse 8, the Masoretic text said, and a lion shouted. Which didn't make a lot of sense. So sometimes you have a translation that says, well, and a lookout shouted like a lion or something like that. Because there's a lookout mentioned in the previous context. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, it was found that the term lookout showed up in verse 8 in the scroll, the scroll of Isaiah found there. So what happens is then you have what's likely an earlier reading having a more sensical reading in that sense. So translations will often take account of this. And what's interesting is that the Hebrew for lookout and for lion are fairly similar in their sound. So it could explain the mix-up. And the footnote that you have in the NIV to explain this follows lookout in the text and says Dead Sea Scrolls and Sirach, which is a translation of the Hebrew into the Sirach, also supporting the lookout versus the lion. 
but notice Masoretic text, a lion. So you can see in the footnotes that the Dead Sea Scrolls have helped us to think about translation. Now there's some translations that stay with lion because it is the harder reading, which in text criticism is always something we need to pay attention to. But all to say that new information helps us to translate better. It gives us more information from which to work. Another example from the New Testament is Luke 2.7. The NIV 1984 talked about how Mary and Joseph had to stay, put Jesus in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Cataluma. In the 19 or the 2011 NIV, that's been changed to there was no guest room for them. We're reading the Christmas story one Christmas, and my nephews heard um, instead of no room for them in the inn, the no room, uh, no guest room for them, and they kind of giggled because they were so used to hearing the no room for them in the inn, right? The, the term used is not the very particular hadokeon. You hear that in Luke 10, where there's the parable of the Samaritan, there's an inn where the Samaritan brings this one who has fallen among thieves. It is a more general term related to a lodging place. In this context, it seems more likely that Mary and Joseph are staying with people along the way that they might know or that people they know know, you know, the kind of hospitality you'd expect in the ancient world at this time. And they're probably staying somewhere where there just simply is no extra room. So they're in the ground floor where the animals are kept. So more likely they are in a guest room, though it doesn't read as well in that Linus cadence that we have in our mind from the, the Luke 2 story, right? And there were shepherds in the field keeping up. I can't do the Linus thing. So that, those are some examples of changes because we learn more. What about changes to the English language? I love this first example. The King James in Isaiah talks about a besom. I will make, it has a couple words I don't know actually. I will also make it a possession for the bittern, which is a bird of some kind. I didn't know that. And pools of water. And I also sweep it with the besom of destruction. A besom in 1611 was a broom. That's what they called a broom. But we don't do that anymore. We call that. We call it a broom. So translations need to update because language just simply changes. Another example. This is one of my favorites because I got to be part of this change. In the NIV, we got rid of all thongs in 2011. I was part of the team coming in in 2010, so I got to be part of that decision. There were seven occurrences of the word thong in the NIV at that time. The thong of Samson's bowstring, the thong of the sandal, which John said he was not worthy to untie. Well, you know what thong connotes, or actually denotes, gets in our minds, right? It was time to get rid of the thong. Now, I would note, it was. The NASB still has Paul tied up with thongs and acts, I think, still to this day. So. Translations need to work to say, now, how is that striking us in English today? Because English changes. Another example, and a big one for the NIV in 2011, was the language of people or men. Does men connote people or denote people or males? Well, in the old day, men was more generic. It functioned that way. But it stopped doing that 80s, certainly in the 90s. Maybe before that, some would argue. So when we hear the, the nice, the, the important word from, let's see where that was, First Timothy, this is good and it is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved. That's not an exclusive use of uh, the term there in the Greek. It's, it's meant to be all people, right? So trying to catch up with those kinds of things, very important. That was the NIV 
uh, was part of a big debate in the late 90s, early 2000s related to that. So when it came to 2010, when I met with the team for the first time, I was part of this first 15-person team, talk a little more about that later, we committed to going through every part of the NIV that talked about humanity, men, women, people, humanity, mankind, kind of every, she, he, they, every occurrence of all of that across the Bible, committed to going through every occurrence to really think about, is the author meaning to be here inclusive or exclusive? If a group of men go and do something, it's quite fine to translate it, that as men, but if it's meant to be a group of people, then that needs to shift to people, or if it's talking about all people, is humanity better, or humankind? So that discussion is a really crucial one, and uh, it's still kind of debated within different translations, whether they, uh, some translations still will use brothers and not brothers and sisters. The NIV will use brothers and sisters throughout when Paul is talking to communities of faith because they are mixed groups all the way through. And the final one that's still tricky to this day is whether you're going to use foreigner, stranger, alien. After ET, alien didn't work quite so well, didn't play real well. So resident alien, some translations go with that very technical term almost because in the Old Testament, there is a group, the Gare, that are this group that are living in the land and they're not Israelites, but they have come to dwell with Israel. They don't have all the rights, but they have a lot of the rights. They don't do all the things in terms of the Torah, but they do some of them. How do you translate that? It's still a big question mark, and we come back to it frequently because there isn't an ideal term um, that doesn't maybe have some connotation that you don't want to bring in. Stranger, you know, when you have kids and you warn them about strangers, that suddenly becomes a term that's not very helpful, and sometimes you just don't have a great term. It would be kind of do the lesser of the evils there. So that's a little bit about the why of translation or revision. The who, and that is me over there, my younger self, uh, along with the NIV team. I, I'm going to give you the who th primarily through the lens of the Committee on Bible Translation, which is the group I'm a part of, which is uh, a team that superintends the new international version. I've been a part of the team for 13 years now, but it's been going, going on since the inception of the NIV. So the CBT superintends the translation, all parts of it, footnotes, headings even. It is a 15-member committee, about half NT, half OT. You can tell we don't split that exactly. It's got to be eight and seven or something like that. And the NIV or the, the CBT, this group that superintends the NIV, this is the first generation. If you can look on a website and find this, you can kind of tell it's very old print. And this is a picture of them. See the picture? And it's, you know, white guys, right? I mean, this is, this, these were Bible scholars in that time. Uh, and this was a broadly evangelical team and still continues to be kind of broadly evangelical. And um, I hope you see that there's some more diversity. That has been a goal of the team to grow in diversity. This is 2019. Um, and then here's 2022, just this last summer, um, with our first member uh, from Africa. Uh, the new international version was always meant to be international everywhere where English is spoken as a primary language. It may not be the primary language, but it might be the first, you know, the, the sort of the, not the mother tongue, but the first trade language or the first common language in that context. So we try to have people from all of those places where English is that primary or very first secondary language. We have a, a member from India, 
We have a member from Australia, we have a member from Canada, two from the UK, and our first member from Africa, um, Liz Maburu is sitting right there. And that's been a really important part of diversifying the team so we can hear the text with those kind of international and not just Western ears. Uh, I want to give you a few other examples of translation teams that are currently working on revisions. The NLT has announced a revision, and this is that group. A good friend of mine, Lynn Coak, has been named to that group. And then the New Revised Standard Version has just gone through an update and came out in, I think it was 2022. Mike Holmes from Bethel University was leading that team, and that's just, that's just the New Testament. In this context, the revision is done by sending in work to, a, a, to an editorial team, and I'm not sure if the small groups work together. I'm not sure how that worked, but the idea was sort of to funnel work into an editorial kind of process. I've been part of the Common English Bible Translations since back in 2008, maybe, and I did work on it, but then handed it off and really didn't have an ongoing influence or role in that translation, though I, I like that translation uh, and had some, I just did some work in First Peter that was the only place I found that one. So different translations walk through revision in different ways. Often a team will pull together for a new revision, and a revision will often happen every generation or so. So let's talk a little bit about the how of translation. To reiterate again, almost all translations go through revision. Most are fairly new, and they haven't done that yet. NLT's last revision was 2004. Now it's going through revision again every generation or so. That's, that's essentially the idea. And often the translations teams come together and convene for that period of time and then disband. I think the Holman Christian Standard, which is now the Christian Standard Bible, did that. And it's not that they're fully disbanded, but they are kind of on hiatus. They're dormant. Maybe that's the way to put it. And the work is often done, again, by individuals or groups and then brought together by, into an editorial process. It, this, the, the Committee on Bible Translation meets every year and has met every year since the start of the uh, CBT. So translation first came out in 1978, New Testament, 1984, full Bible. And since that time, the committee has met every year. I don't think there's a year they, they have not met. In 2020, we met by Zoom, and we met for like four hours at a time. So our Australian member didn't have to meet from midnight to eight in the morning or something like that. It was more like two to six, and then we could sleep before work started or something like that. So what we do in the CBT, this is our process. Proposals come to the committee, requiring a motion and a second. They come, uh, we'll see, from the committee, but also from people outside of the committee. And then they come months ahead of our meeting. We'll meet in end of June. I'm waiting now to probably receive some proposals for this year in April. That's typically what happens. Any proposals I work on need to be sent in by March so they can be collated and sent around. So we can do the work. We can study. We can use our resources. We can think about how we might vote on the proposal. And um, we come ready to discuss. The proposals are set up so you have the, the Hebrew or the Greek, and then you have the NIV English, and then you have the proposal, or maybe proposal one, proposal two, if there's different ways that the um, proposer might think it could go and then a rationale. That's kind of the way the proposals work. And we get hundreds of proposals then every year that we go through. And we might land on one for 15 minutes or two hours. It just sort of depends on the proposal and the issue. And I'll talk a little bit more about what some of these might look like. 
So we have a discussion around the proposals, proposals and then we vote, and it's a pretty conservative change policy. It takes about 75% of the team, I think 12 out of 15, to make a change. Um, the theme is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And it's really got to be a captivating kind of compelling argument for it to change. Uh, and I think that served the NIV well because it can be easy to flip-flop on issues back and forth that, you know, if you look at multiple translations, you go, wow, about half of them read it this way and half of it read it that way. And rather than feeling like every other year we're going back and forth, there's a sense where, okay, we've talked about that one and we've vetted it and the team decided it wasn't the change uh, that we needed to make. Let me just mention my first year in 2010. I mentioned that this was the year before the 2011 was issued. That was the first revision since 1984. It was three weeks in Whistler, British Columbia. It was beautiful, and we worked 16 days out of those three weeks. So it was not, there's not a lot of vacation time going on. We had one Saturday we worked and one Saturday off. It was so nice of them, right? If we focused a lot on gender language for humanity, that was kind of the commission, and that was the, the commitment that we would review those to be sure we were being as accurate as we could. Of course, I was one of two women on the team at that point. I was just coming on. The first year, you kind of think, okay, I'm just going to listen a lot, offer my most insightful comments when I feel like it, and keep quiet most of the time. But I was one of two women, and they divided us into teams for the first seven days, two teams, because we went through Genesis through Isaiah, and the other group took the next part through Revelation. And Karen Jobes, the other woman, was on the other team, of course, because they needed to have woman's voice on both, I suppose. Um, so I, there was no way to be quiet. And you might, I mean, if any of you know me, I'm not that quiet anyway. So it's definitely. But I, I would have liked to have sat back, but there's just sometimes I thought, oh my goodness, I've got to say something here. This, this sounds ridiculous. Or, you know, I mean, my own internal conversation was a little different than my external. But I thought at the end of it, I call it my trial by fire. I don't know. Um, at the end of your time, it's the first year is sort of like dating. So you're dating, and then at the end of the time, they, they vote you in or not. And you get to say yes or no to the invitation. And I was sure they were going to say no, or they are going to say, you know, you go back home and stay there or whatever. It just felt like it was going to be a tricky time. But they invited me in and were enthusiastically supportive. And I said, sure, because I love the work. I think it's really important work, as you might imagine. And it's just really fun. It's like being in this high-level Bible study some of the time. I listen to my Hebrew colleagues, the ones that know Hebrew. And just, it's just amazing to sit there and to kind of listen in and think about it. And then to really get into the fray when you feel strongly about a particular thing. And to bring your own proposal. I didn't bring my own proposal until two years. I think it was 2013, maybe. I waited a couple years. I was so nervous. I was like, oh, my goodness. They're not going to like anything I do. And I had lots of rationale. And I was just, everything was, you know. And I think both of them carried. Because I, I picked two things that I felt strongly about. And I had a good reason. For but and since then, it is to me amazing that people will bring proposals they feel strongly about. And they can be, I mean, I've had numbers of mine voted down. I don't think, I mean, maybe I have a little more than half of it. I don't know. I don't keep track because it's not really that important because it's not about me. It's about the work. And it's amazing to see somebody argue vigorously for their proposal. At the end of it, it's voted down. And we go out to lunch and we talk and we're 
you know, we're in relationship, we're committed to each other, we're committed to the work, and it's kind of a wonderful place to see how disagreement and even sometimes conflict in terms of the intensity of what we're doing is the work is more important than the ego. You know, and these are some pretty smart people on this team. I'm not going to put myself in that category, but, you know, these, these people that have, you know, Bruce Waltke wrote a Hebrew gram, you know, so he sits on that committee. He's now 90. Just amazing to listen to him still really working the Hebrew. He's had plenty of proposals fail, and we just keep on moving on, and it's an amazing group to be a part of. So I just that little piece of my own experience. And every generation or so, the NIV will come out again. So in another 10 years, something like that, there'll be another version. We don't like to do it so often that people feel like they don't know which Bible they have and somebody else's. Our current work is to continue to take proposals from team members, also from people outside of the team, whether scholars, lay people. You just have to bring a proposal through one of the members and they can bring it to the team. I've had people from Bethel who are not Bible scholars bring proposals. I've had my Greek class bring a proposal. Passed. Really cool. Philippians. Yeah. And then we're doing a canonical review. So we're reading through different parts of both Old and New Testament. We'll do both. And each year, this year is the Psalms and Hebrews. We're in the Psalms and Hebrews. And we're reading through, and we're reading through the current text as it's been revised. I get a little copy of it in the mail. It's Hebrews and Psalms 2022 version of the NIV, which is hush, hush. Nobody has it, right? But what we do. So because you don't want to make proposals on things that have already been changed, right? Our memory isn't that great that we remember 13 years ago or 10 years ago. So we do that work. We bring proposals related to the canonical review. And I can't really share what proposals have passed, but I can tell you one that I'm going to bring when we go through First Peter in another year or so. So here's a proposal I'm going to bring in First Peter 2.17. It's at the end of the little section at the start of the household code where believers were, are encouraged to submit to the governing authorities, the emperor, and those he sent, very clearly the emperor, not sort of just generic authorities. It has the feel of Rome all over this passage. And at the end of that little section, Peter uh, has already qualified a bit Rome's power and the emperor's presumption of, um, of, of the... The emperor, there were these, these thing, places called emperor cult or the emperor, it's a temple at which people were required to worship the emperor and give offerings and worship. Well, Christians didn't do that, as you know, got him into trouble eventually, maybe even at this stage. And what he says at the end of this section is really important. He says, current NIV, show respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. It's the same word, though, in the first and the last of those four. Honor everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Because tamao, honor, it sounds like not a big deal. And you realize the emperor expects not honor, yes, that, but more, worship. And he says, honor the emperor, but he says, honor everyone. It's a very democratization of this spreading of honor. And currently, the NIV just has kind of an elegant variation, which is this idea that when you see repetition, it's not always important. Since NIV will sometimes vary the terms so that when you're reading out the scripture in public, in English, we vary terms. We use a thesaurus when we write, at least I do. 
I'm like, I'm, I use that word there. I'm going to use a different one here, even though I'm saying about the same thing. That's the way the NIV often did their work early on until a lot of work in biblical studies realized these patterns are very important. They can be. So if they are important, we've make, made the move as a committee to pay attention to those patterns. Uh, in this case, I think it's a really important one to pay attention to because he's saying something by using that same language. So we'll see how it goes. I think it'll go pretty well because we've been prone to do that, to say if there's a reason for keeping the repetition, let's do that. So one other way proposals come to us, we might be as a committee realizing something about the way something's been done. And we look at a whole set of proposals around language. So for example, servant or slave, which has been a hot topic in Bible translation in recent years, the Christian Standard Bible or Holman Christian Standard, moved toward using slave more of the time for doulos and sometimes for, um, and for Old Testament language as well. We went through a package proposal a number of years ago and looked at all of that language and tried to determine good usage of that language, servant or slave. You can find out later what happened there. One thing that has been, uh, we, I just brought some proposals last year. Disability language is always, and importantly, changing. The way we talk about disability, one thing that is important currently for those with disabilities or in the disability community even the word disability, I know, is language that needs to be looked at. But one thing is to not ever lead with a disability, but to lead with a person, a person who cannot see rather than a blind person. And so we've tried to do some of that, that work of change. And I brought some initial proposals this last year, and the team was very open to that. And in the long lists of people Jesus heals, it gets pretty clunky. So I was trying to think about how we do this smoothly, but without using language that is offensive, or using the order of language that would be not preferred. So we're, we're thinking about all those things, and I'm bringing a package proposal, not this year, but in a coming year on that topic. So trying to be sensitive to how language continues to change and be used. My hope is in our short time uh, that we've been talking about this, you've gotten a glimpse of how Bible revision work is done. I'd like to be sure, though, to affirm at this point that the Bible you hold in your hands is the result of careful and thoughtful work, likely by a team of translators who care deeply about being as accurate as possible. I've never met people who want accuracy as much as Bible translators. Not that they always achieve it, but that they like it. And while that, their work is imperfect, inevitably, since it's done by imperfect and finite people, I take great comfort in the willingness of God, the God of all creation, to entrust transmission, translation, preaching, teaching, all of that work we do around scripture is trust, entrusted that into human hands. And it seems to me it's a very incarnational way for God to work. And incarnation is my favorite doctrine. So if you want to talk about that later, let me know. But it is, I, I am impressed that God entrusts it all. So thanks so much for your time and I'm happy to answer some questions. Thanks for listening to the Eden podcast brought to you by the members of the True 316 Foundation. Research into the Old and New Testaments by Dr. Joy Fleming and Reverend Bruce C.E. Fleming forms the base of all our work. Joy is a former Old Testament professor and is a practicing licensed psychologist. Bruce is the author of the Eden book series, which starts with book one, the book of Eden, Genesis 2 to 3. 
We invite you to become a donor member of the True 316 Foundation as together we seek to true the verse of Genesis 316 and related passages. When you become a member, we'll send you an autographed copy of the Book of Eden. Sign up today by going to true316.com slash member. That's tru316.com slash member.